Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. One of the things that makes Margot Jefferson's new book, Constructing a Nervous System, so remarkable is that despite being a lauded writer and critic, despite being the winner of a Pulitzer Prize even, she innovates and takes risks like a writer with absolutely nothing to lose. Subtitled A Memoir, Constructing a Nervous System is unlike any book previously given that label. It's both the history of a mind's formation and the deconstruction of a culture and its tropes, as well as what feels like a form of self-analysis taking place on the page beneath the reader's eyes in real time. It's a book about race and gender, but also a family and culture, and where all four intersect. It's also a book about how one person used the limitations society sought to place on her as a ladder to climb free of them. Margot Jefferson, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's thrilling to be part of this history. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's thrilling to have you with us. Um, one thing I often find when preparing for these conversations is when I have a relatively small book, short book in front of me, like Constructing a Nervous System, and then I look at the notes that I've taken and they're more extensive than the notes that I would take for a 600-page novel. I always take that as a good sign um, that we're going to we're going to have a lot to talk about. I No, I take it as such, too. I uh, From my days as a critic, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Right. And where I'd like to start is with the with the, the genesis of this book, because though you've given this book the title Constructing a Nervous System, in a sense, it could have also been called Constructing Another Nervous System, because what you're doing at the start of this is deconstructing where you've arrived at in your life, how you think about certain things, and looking for ways essentially to to rebuild that from the, the ground up. Yes. Um, exactly. Could you just talk a little bit about where the genesis for this book came from? What was the seed for your um, mm. for you writing this book? Well, uh, <laughs> seeds are often, um, you know, negative in a strange <laughs> way, and I think it began with. Um, Various people after Negroland uh, say, ah, so you're going to do a volume two, mm -hmm. uh, which is often the way memoirs traditionally proceed. And my thinking, oh, you know, I, does that mean I'm going to be trapped in mm -hmm. chronology in you know, certain dutiful recountings, <laughs> uh, gesturing nobly towards parts of my life that don't seem that interesting, but that, you know, might have some public and I thought, ooh, I have to find, <laughs> I have to find some way around and through. Um, mm. Or, you know, you, you bore yourself, um, which sure. probably means you bore your readers. But even if you don't bore some of your readers, you can't live with that dutifulness. <laughs> yes. So I think 
that really was the genesis. Um, mm -hmm. If I want to keep writing in some way, um, what we'll loosely call memoir, and mm -hmm. if, as I discovered with Negroland, um, being a critic is a crucial part of, mm -hmm. of my identity, I know mm -hmm. as much, then I have to find some way for them to encounter each other, clash, collaborate, um, that allows me Mm. You know, fresh access, yeah, 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 or at least, or at least fresh angles. You know, reconstructing doesn't mean you're getting rid of the materials, but you are realigning them and, mm -hmm. and redesigning them. Yeah, and maybe throwing some out in favor of it. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm really interested in that that phrase you used, um, gesturing nobly to a certain <laughs> because I think there must be a sense, and we we feel this tension near the start of the book that you. You feel in a way that you, you do occupy us, you do have a certain responsibility to writing about uh, the experience of black people, the experience of black women in particular. Yes, yes. And yes. I don't want to use the term like something like activist writing or something like that, but you feel in some way you possibly aside you want to represent this um, voice. It, and yet it, at the same time. And yet at the same time, what, um, what, confines um what proprieties even if it's called activist writing instead of respectability politics mm -hmm. um both can can and do um you know ins tend to insist on or favor mm -hmm. certain stances um certain responsibilities mm -hmm. and you know i was also you're right i was very interested in how um i you know like i'm about to shed these identities hardly but how they can manifest themselves in unexpected ways that possibly that digress from, that mm -hmm. thwart um, um, demands and expectations mm -hmm. that are kind of preconceived. Mm -hmm. And that can often lead, um, despite all your good intentions, to forms of um, self-censorship that are actually mm -hmm. forms of cultural and critical mm -hmm. um, and personal personal as a writer bringing a persona to the page, though all of those can be censored in ways that aren't useful yeah, you know, yeah you're yeah. like looking over your shoulder you're putting yourself under surveillance you're trying to prejudge what your audiences need mm -hmm. is that is that a feeling that is has become more acute in recent years with the way that people communicate and perhaps the way that the the discourse happens on social media do you think there is a greater self-policing uh i think in terms of social media because of social media there is, I think, all of the, the impulses and needs and you know, considerations that go into self-policing, because mm -hmm. that has to do with ideology and politics. Those have always mm -hmm. existed and always been argued over and debated. But, and people, writers who are younger than I and therefore more involved in social media, it doesn't have to be dictated by age, mm -hmm. but if you're a writers of, of a certain generation, you really have to have a social media sure. presence. They do say that mm -hmm. certain kinds of self scrutiny and 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 you know of alertness to what ought not to be said they feel that very acutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. Um, I'm conscious of and we... constantly, you know, because <laughs> if you're a real social media presence, it's it's with you all of the mm -hmm. time. It's like a radio playing 24 hours a day. Yeah, 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 and with all of the kind of the uh, potential for derangement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm conscious that we, we, we mentioned this idea of a nervous system, but we haven't really explored it for our listeners. And if people haven't read the book, they might be thinking, well, what is uh, this nervous system um, that we're talking about? And there's a moment where you, you give us a description. You say, my nervous system is my structure of recombinant thoughts, memories, feelings, sensations and words. Uh, could you just unravel that uh, that idea a little for us? Well, you know, uh, a friend, a writer friend gave me this title by accident. I, I was complaining about how hard the book was. <laughs> and she said, yeah, of course it is. It's like constructing a nervous system. And I thought, oh, God, here is this. I saw this va this structure, this in you know internal structure that's our nervous system in all the ways. It seems to be taking care of itself, but also needs to be tended to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, re revitalized and re realigned, um, not exactly realigned, but revitalized, you know, retuned. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I, I thought, let's, let's make that internal. That's obviously what the friend meant. And how does that translate into, um, if basically a psychic, which mm -hmm. and cultural, uh, nervous system? Yeah. 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 It, it also strikes me that it's sort of, there's the concept of the nervous system seems to underline how fundamental to your construction as a person this uh, these these thoughts, memories, and feelings are. Yes, one doesn't really exist without <laughs> the nervous system in the all biological sense, and certainly in the sense um, I'm working on. It's it's you know cultural determination um, determining there's bi biological uh, as it's interpreted mm -hmm. um, and as we experience it. There's well, there also the there's the larger culture, whether it moves, whether it's your family, school, um, you know, this larger world of ideas, education. But there's also we all have this personal, intimate, private culture that starts when we're very young, just mm -hmm. instinctive responses, you know, of, of joy to a, mm -hmm. to a color, to a sound you know, when you mm -hmm. start to read. And they are they're unscripted mm -hmm. and. They are in a certain way uncensored, but mm -hmm. as they mix and mingle with your training, with your cultural and social and educational training, you know, they get, they get jumpy. They get nervous. They, you know, you start thinking, that's a, that, that, that he was a terrible writer. Why did I love that book so? Uh, you know, or, or, you know, as, as I, as I clash in, uh, into, in Negro land, James Baldwin saying, mm -hmm. Oh, Louisa May Alcott, my right. God, she's impossible. You go, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Uh, I need Baldwin and I need Louisa May Alcott. How can I find uh -huh. platforms within, you know, my, myself, my culture, my capacities for thought and language mm. and feeling for both of them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that does seem to be something which is actually very hard to do, even consciously, like to admit to oneself, what are those sort of, fundamental foundational people or texts and because often and we'll come on to some of the figures um, that you talk about but often they're ones that may leave us feeling a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit embarrassed or certainly yes. not uh, unambiguously good thoughts you know no that's absolutely that's absolutely right um, and similarly this would often happen you know when i was doing a review or whatever there are these things that you know are are worthy are are masterful are thrilling and they don't thrill you so you know it's also your job without uh justifying that necessarily to figure that through too you know that's another way of of diagnosing and testing and experimenting with 
yeah, um, yeah. you know, your sensibility um, and your responsibilities <laughs> you know, to yourself and to, you know, to the larger world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the moment during the book, you write a little bit about the, um, the passing away of your mother. Um, and that seemed, despite being obviously a very, a very sort of a sad moment for you, it did also seem to bring along a certain liberation in a sense, sort of artistically or critically, almost as if sort of your mother represented perhaps some sort of super ego sort of you know, judge and jury over the, the influences that you, you were know, able to acknowledge. You know, she, she, here's a strange thing. She, she did because she was, you know, extraordinarily, um, compelling figure. She was also, you know, and she, as my sister once said, my God, she poured herself into us. <laughs> Not a detail was left unexamined. <laughs> so in that way, yes, um, she was also enormously funny and charming. Um, and that's more in Negroland than here. Um, and seductive. And I think part of what happened was her death um, allowed me to acknowledge, to fully in some ways act out um, my struggles with right. her and my resentment even as the superego, but it also allowed me to um, incorporate in my own key mm. um, those parts of her, uh, her id parts. Mm. Um, <laughs> so she became, um, that's, she becomes a kind of um, translated style model. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. What, one thing I said near the start was it's sort of in order to construct another nervous system, you need to in a sense, deconstruct the one that has been built up within you over the years. And it struck me that that perhaps must have been fundamentally the most difficult part of writing this book, actually, because I, I feel even for myself that sort of I get into to certain intellectual furrows in a way. And as the years go on, yes, I perhaps things kind of unquestioned in, in the way I approach the world and the way I engage with things or the way I uh, cite influences. And intellectual furrows furrows is the perfect word that's yeah yeah could, could you talk a little bit about that 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 experience of the the deconstruction of the the nervous system that you inherited in a sense or you constructed after that um, i think there um the the wanting again which i because i i say again because i've mentioned it before mm -hmm. that wanting to see what would be set off if I tried to make what seemed to be arts writing or mm -hmm. criticism, here's Ella Fitzgerald, here's Bud Powell, you know, here's Soul, here's ballet. Um, mm -hmm. If I made that, found ways um, with my mind and feelings and prose to make it as intimate mm -hmm. as, you know, falling in love, <laughs> you know, those bonds we have with our parents, uh, you know, to make it a sort of key, what we think of as a key as, um, as not just aesthetic experience, but, um, psychological, emotional, mm -hmm. um, almost philosophical. So if I could do that, and if that could also set off, uh, connections to what we think of as the more traditional memoir material, mm -hmm. like my relationship to my father, you know, this affair that goes wrong, um, even teaching, um, Willa Cather, then, that that they're they're wearing each other's masks mm -hmm. in a sense um, would would be would would shake some things loose would shake yeah. some things loose yeah yeah that's, that's interesting that idea of kind of wearing the mask because 
Uh, at a moment, you ask, sort of, am I am I a parasite in a way? Um, well, because, because I'm constantly wearing, using the little shifting masks of other writers, musicians, whatever's words um, uh-huh. and and rhythms, and, and I love that. I just thought, let's yeah. let's do that openly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. but that's that's the key word, right? Openly, because I think it's something all writers and artists do. Uh, but I think there's maybe something in our culture, the way we fetishize genius, I don't know, but this idea of like it has to come from nowhere. Yeah. And the fact that you sort of outlay that this is where it comes from. I acknowledge this. I take this part. I don't take that part. And I build something new seems such a sort of truthful way of describing how where a lot of art comes from. Well, you know, people, writers are um, examining this in the last maybe t- five, ten years, they've been thinking about this much more. Do we steal? You know, what, what do we do? And then they tend to come out on different sides, often, particularly maybe with fiction writers, but not entirely. Um, the decision is I use it and maybe I'll write an essay about it, but it's folded into the material that's mine. Um, there are some nonfiction. Yeah. David Shields actually is a nonfiction writer that wants to do the same thing. He, I don't want to credit these people. I want to just have their words. Um, yes. um, I wanted to credit them, um, partly because, um, I don't want to be sanctimonious about this. So I think I wanted to credit them because I wanted the reader to be able to track this, mm. this, this plethora of engagements and involvements. It seemed to me to be as, as necessary mm. <laughs> you know, as, as, as the doing it, the revealing, mm-hmm. you know, because um, rather than, than co- constant conflict of elements, I wanted multiplicity, even, right. you know, um, of, things that clashed and were obviously in some way binaries, (laughs) but I wanted to keep them on the move and flexible in that way. And again, you know, revealing these things that um, one loved, needed, Mm. hated, but also needed um, and naming them. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think. um, And then it helps the reader in some way. You want to help your readers because mm -hmm. that means they may respond to you more. It um, it stimulates them to make their own maps, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. 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 I think that's absolutely true. I think um, what's one thing I find most stimulating about the books I love the most is that they sort of send me back into my own thoughts. Actually, they almost sort of set off within me the process that the writer has been going through. That's it. That's what you want. And you're right. That is one. That's always true of the books we Mm. love most. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about these kind of these clashes. And I suppose one of the clashes, like by no means all of the writers and artists you talk about men, but you also are very open about the fact you said, since my teens, I've avidly, often secretly collected black male performers. As as, uh, Yes. Yes. As grand alter egos. Yes, I wanted, um, they were central in the culture, these, these generations of men that I talk about, you know, starting with really, you know, the stuff I grew up listening to through my parents, you know, the jazz singers, the Nat King Coles, the Billy Exines, or the, the cabaret singers, the Bobby Short, then moving, you know, as I, my generation took over into soul and funk and, and R&B, um, the men, and this, of course, is hardly surprising because we were <laughs> patriarchy was unquestioned in these days in every culture, and uh, so it's hardly surprising that the men, black men, 
as performers, as intellectuals, all, we're taking up, we're claiming, able to claim much more attention and space in mm -hmm. the culture and mm -hmm. acknowledgement than almost any black woman. So of course I was jealous not only of of the creation of these artists and these persona, because they all have flawless sense of costume, gesture, mm -hmm. whatever. I was jealous of the attention they got. Right. <laughs> and how does one, you know, I, I, one was always looking for this um, mm -hmm. in women, um, writers, thinkers, artists, um, black, white, wherever you could find it. You know, mm -hmm. how does one take hold, take up space, make claims. Um, I did. I did and those that. men all did it. Yeah. And yeah. they, th and they were thrilling. You know, they gave me great pleasure. And then, yeah, at the same time, a part of the, um, the impact that the, those men you described had was on what might be called white culture. And you do then have, you question yourself. You ask like whether the fact that you're a black woman, does that sort of exempt you from this kind of obsession that Ob white obsession that is a could be a kind of cannibalizing that's certainly right. a kind of exoticizing um i this is something and this also has to do with um with class um mm -hmm. because it's also easy if you're in some way by you know a, a privileged mm -hmm. um black intellectual writer thing you know to plunge into this extraordinarily rich and deep um <laughs> world of black culture, uh, call it popular culture, folk culture, roots culture, um, and um, be a little arrogant about it, you mm -hmm. know, use its materials um, uh, because they're, uh, use its materials as your own, as mm -hmm. ways of all enhancing your own sense of yourself. Yeah. Um, so that kind of privilege, I, I wanted to, you can't get rid completely of those kinds of um, no. <laughs> privileges. Um, we don't in ourselves, but you can examine them. You mm. can lay them out, you can critique them, and that, you know, that means you're not in the same way enthralled to them. Yes. So I yeah. had to ask that question, um, which I didn't, didn't exactly answer, but what I hoped was that the ways in which I wrote and approached um, would, um, somewhat exon ex exonerate, if not exempt me. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of these figures, and um, I must admit, I don't know very much or didn't know very much about this person uh, before reading your book. But even when I saw the name there, I knew uh, there was enough kind of cultural inheritance for me to go, oh, that's interesting. She's talking about him is Mike Turner. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, right? <laughs> because if you know, if you know sort of one thing about Ike Turner, it's that what a kind of what a monster he was. What a monster, yes, what a monster he probably was from the beginning. That's all a little shaded, but certainly became fully yeah. and thoroughly. Yes, yes, yes. And is, is there a feeling when you are going to engage with a, um, a character like Ike Turner, and even though the way in which you engage with him, if readers take, you know, if re, if re, when readers read the book, They'll realize it's very sort of it's very subtle and it's very nuanced. But like, is there a fear that people might think you're trying to rehabilitate the? Yes, <laughs> you see me even as you're talking. Um, you see me nodding almost desperately. Sure. Um, that that scared me. It, you know, made me squeamish. Uh, and I also thought, you know, just go with it. It's here. It's always been here. Is it 
any worse mm -hmm. than the whiteness obsession, you know, that Willa Cabot displays right. in Song of the Lark that you managed to live with and kind of overlook. Um, mm -hmm. So, so just go with it. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a useful figure in that way. There also, there's always a kind of um, menace and mm -hmm. potential monstrousness, um, you know, to the outcast, mm -hmm. the ostensibly outcast, blues singer, soul mm -hmm. singer, um, country singer. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a certain kind of male um, um, insolence mm -hmm. now that is built into, you know, muddy waters. You know, even the, ma the masters who weren't, as far as we know, monsters mm -hmm. in the same way and who were more talented than I. But there he was in the center of the culture with yeah. this this woman who freed herself. So it, it just fascinated me. And mm -hmm. I had, there's no reason really that I would have affected to him so young, except, mm -hmm. you know, in this kind of strange, again, drama of masking and impersonation and insecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, all my girlfriends can be better at imitating Tina, you know, so I'd better find something else. Yes. <laughs> I'll appropriate Ike, okay? And then I'll challenge Jay-Z, you know. Right. You, you were being a pig, but I'm being <laughs> a real examiner of this man. <laughs> but that's the thing, I think, as well, is that it's, um, in a sense, in not talking about it, I think potentially you one could do more harm, right? Because they're sort of having uh, this kind of this this fascination, leaving it unexamined, unexplored, but still influential on your well, life. that's the key when the thing is still in some way um influential, you know mm -hmm. it's it's marking you as you write about all things around it, the worlds around it um you've got to you've got to find a way mm -hmm. uh you know to give it shape and yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. otherwise it it's it stains you know right. it, I think we can always tell I don't how often do you talk to um just a smart friend who's not a writer and they've read an essay they've read a review and they say something's going on here that this writer is not mm. acknowledging there's mm. this what there's this subtext I I didn't trust that yeah 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 right you can feel it you can feel you it you really can yeah. yeah 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 um the one way you you talk about this this kind of um, relation to the writers, and I, I believe it's a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, you mean to the black man when I say yes. I'm a, yes, when I yes. when I um, admire a man, I want to be like him in some yeah. way. So. And the, the quote seems very enlightening. Is is I don't want the man. I want to absorb into myself all the qualities that make him attractive and leave him out. Exactly. <laughs> it becomes a feminist statement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm teasing, but. Yeah, uh, yeah, true. But you know, one does that. Um, I think the the way I write about many of the women, it's mm -hmm. there. There's a process rather akin to that um, mm -hmm. with Ella Fitzgerald. Um, I want her genius. Mm -hmm. I want even as a young woman that you know that just ebullient, wonderful mm -hmm. voice. The, yeah. But I don't want any of the associations that come with her yeah. being yeah, yeah. unglamorous overweight um you know someone a woman who sweats in an era right. when women were so, you know, particularly black women were supposed to show they were above various animal states no. by never <laughs> never sweating yes. um, so you know it's how do i how do i take everything that she is along yeah. with that that i was too too conditioned yeah. you know too anxious mm -hmm. um yeah 
Let's talk about Ella Fitzgerald, because that for me was one of the really the most fascinating parts of the book about this public relationship to sweat. Um, it, it just seemed something, honestly, something I had never considered before uh, as as having a sort of cultural resonances um, sort of, you know, connected to connected to her race, connected to her connected. gender. Yes, and labor and working classness and, mm. oh, yeah, you're fit for beast of burden type type stuff, you know, which is always, you know, one of the old tropes imposed mm-hmm. on blacks. But you're not fit for that, for higher mm. thought or higher art. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the way that she, through her art, managed to, to a certain extent, transcend that. I mean, you talk particularly of this one performance, this kind of reimagining of uh, smoke gets in my eyes. Smoke gets in me. Yes. Uh, well, what happens is the actual line, and it's um, "How High the Moon," which was mm-hmm. actually a song written by um, by a woman. But if the, you know, she improvises all over the place. She inserts, and it's her version of you know all the quotes that, <laughs> that writers we love might use. All the influences, everything from Rinsky Korsakov to uh, <laughs> um, you know. Little, little blues, tiny little blues riffs. Um, and at the very end, she takes this beautiful and slightly lacrimose, um, Jerome Kern ballad, um, at So I Smile and Say, When the Lovely Flame Dies, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Now, all through this song, if you see the tape of it, she has been, you know, her musician, she's been improvising and singing and wiping her forehead in a really a kind of, Confident way, and her musicians are going, "Oh my God!" You know, I mean, it's clear <laughs> she's on the track, you know, to major creation. And at the very end, she changes those words: "Smoke gets in my eyes," to "Smoke gets in your eyes" is the line. To "Sweat gets in my eyes," and you go, "Okay, Ella, you know, there's the vindication." Um, you know, it really started. Early on in in the book, you know this. You're a writer. Sometimes it, it just a a, a a a tiny image, you know, something will will set off something. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at um, the album cover for Bud Powell that mm-hmm. I write about, who mm-hmm. I had grown up knowing was a genius and a troubled one. And the close up has sweat mm-hmm. just dripping down his face, and I thought. That then made me think of Louis Armstrong, another mm-hmm. genius in the sweat. And I thought, oh, but for them, it, it's, it's impressive, um, mm-hmm. even to me. And that's when I thought, well, let's call it, in that case, diaphoresis. So mm-hmm. no white person will just have to think of it as sweat. These are artists and it's diaphoresis. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> then that took me to Ella Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, um, yeah. And then back to my own kind of child's division, you know, mm-hmm. with parental aesthetic and social supervision um, of, of, you know, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By no means all of the people you talk about, but a lot of them are singers and musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and now for my part, like, I um, I don't feel I have a musical bone in my body. Like, I, I was told to quit the violin by my <laughs> violin teacher when I was seven. No. Uh, uh, you know, I was I tried out for school choirs and never got in them. And, and, and as a result, I find myself utterly fascinated by musicians and singers who seem to to work and weave magic in a, in, a, in a way that I just can't understand. And I'd be curious to know a little bit about your connection as a sort of a writer and a critic 
to music? Like, are you a musical person? Is it an art form which you understand or does it hold a certain sort of mystery? You know, I would actually say both. Um, I had um, a good deal of and actually quite good um, musical training, piano, like so many people. is. Um, <laughs> you know, when I went to music camp and all of that, studied theory some. Um, but that's not something I chose to pursue um, perfectly reasonably. Um, but it, it stayed inside me, um, and I was rewarded for it you know, by my parents. They were, they were pleased with this talent. My sister was dance, I was piano, and we were both good mm. in school. Right? Mm. <laughs> but um, I, So I think that sense of being close enough to it to know what goes into it, um, knowing that I was not one of those, you know, I was good. I was hardly, you know, major, major, major. Um, so that sense you always feel of something, um, whether you're an athlete, an artist, whatever, something you were engaged in and, and good at, but not, you, you really couldn't have taken it much further, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like, now what's the old Yates thing? You're the kid, you know, you're John Keats with his nose pressed up against the glass. But, right. <laughs> but in a lovely way, you're you're yeah. an audience member, mm. you know. And I think also, um, I think it's performers in general. I do often write about um, mm. music, but um, I think it's all. And I think one reason I pick singers is because so often um, there's that combination of mm. presentation of self, and a very particularly if you're a woman, in a very mm. thought through way, and the so-called pure. Um, musicianship of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, singers, they work with lyrics and mm -hmm. they work through them and against them. If you're a jazz singer, by scatting, if you're um, a blues singer or a pop singer, maybe by, you know, moaning, by, <laughs> um, et cetera. Various, you know, various yeah. tricks and tricks of the trade. So that's always interesting to me. What are they doing rhythmically, harmonically? Yeah. Um, in terms of timbre with, with words mm. that gives them different possibilities. And something which seems to kind of feed in a little bit to the fascination which you unpick a little in the book as well is your father's connection to music. Yes, my, my father um, was a trombonist, again, amateur, but um, you know, he played in little jazz groups around the city. Um, he, the, the boys in my family, uh, in his family, as his mother said, all of my sons are going to be doctors and lawyers. So that's what they did. And that was, you know, one contribution to the progress and respectability by, of the race. Um, would he have pursued this if it had not been closed down? I'm not sure. But it certainly helped keep alive mm -hmm. the, the deep pleasure um, he took in all forms of music, but particularly um in jazz, particularly with those, um, you know, kind of gentlemen master of all ceremonies and rebels like Duke Ellington. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, Bud Powell was a genius that thrilled him. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 One, um, one thing that kind of came up when uh, a few years ago when the, the movie Black Panther was released was this kind of, uh, <laughs> I guess, sort of discourse that came from uh, a certain constituency of people in the States and also in, in, in various European countries have had this kind of pearl clutching around, but, oh, but where are little white boys going to find their, their sort of uh, inspiration from? Um, and, you know, the obvious answer being, well, 
from these characters, you know, mm-hmm. from these black characters. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but this is something which which comes up in the in the book about this idea of sort of learning to imagine, as you put it, learning to imagine what hasn't, can't, and won't imagine you. Or in the case of Wakanda, isn't interested in it. You know, it doesn't right. serve yeah. them in any in any way. Um, yeah. um you know, as a as a practice, as a necessity, or as you know, little, mm-hmm. little choice <laughs> as yeah. an entertainment. So, but yes, um, in my case, you know, again, historically placed, so that many of the years I was growing up, um, being educated, or we might, in certain ways, indoctrinated into canons. Mm-hmm. The canons that I studied were largely white and male. Um, this all began to change um, wonderfully when I was still young, you know, <laughs> in college and after. Um, Cannons, burst, movements, you know, mm-hmm. released all sorts of imaginative as well as social possibilities. I mean, just in the late 60s to the early 70s, you had um, African-American studies. You mm-hmm. began to have other ethnic studies emerging. You had queer studies. You had the women's movement. Mm-hmm. You know, this... <laughs> This was extraordinary, mm. but what it did was it uh, it it gave ballast and counterbalance. I uh, ballast, I guess, would be the word to this part of me that had been able to mm. passionately engage mm. with white, largely male, not wholly canonical culture, but that it also had to do it through this rather often strenuous um, act of okay, I. You know, um, of being the invisible um, but very canny spectator. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're <laughs> you're the reader they didn't take account of, but you know, in that way you're the spy. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're the yeah, yeah. You've infiltrated. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you get it all. There is a certain power in that, but the invisibility um, and the you know infiltration always makes clear the system is is very, very strong and could eradicate you at any moment. Um, Yeah. Now, I don't mean to say that every, you know, reading the Taylor of Gloucester, reading Beatrix Potter as a little girl, I was thinking and struggling through all those things. There's just also a lot of lighthearted pleasure in things, in reading, music, Mm -hmm. whatever, um, dance that please you. But as you get older, you you learn. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whether by choice or whether it's forced on you, and it's both, it's choice and it's forced on you, you learn the price, the demands, the cost. Mm, yeah. And there are certain of these icons, as you talk about, sort of, uh, as you But it's, say, let me just also add, yeah, no, but it is good training, and it is training that white people clearly need. Absolutely. Yeah, How yeah. do I enter all kinds imaginatively of um, possibilities, um, realities, just... languages in every well, way? It just that, seems to They don't put me at the center. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. It's like one script, one performer, you know, mm-hmm. you on center stage and the people, you know, you know, think well of you. Um, and yeah, no yeah. other, no other possibilities. Mm. One of the one of the figures that you engage with it did make me smile when I saw saw his uh, his name come up, uh, Bing Crosby. Now you say um, another one of those slightly unseemly obsessions, like like Ike Turner. <laughs> but the, but the, there's one thing I found really interesting. Um, you say firstly against my better taste and judgment, um, but there's a term that you use, which uh, I think this was probably the moment in the book where I was like, okay, 
I want more on this and maybe an entire book on this because the concept interested me. You said, I have made Mr. Crosby my personal minstrel man. And this idea of like kind of the figure of the minstrel, which I'm not sure I've entirely grasped. I have said, so like, it seems in some way perhaps connected to that sort of Jungian idea of the shadow side of a, of a character. I think, you know, I think that's right. And um, also the um, going back to Jekyll and Hyde and that dual personality horror tradition, you know, mm. the the double who mm. who can do things. Um, yeah. In the case of Bing, with charm and ease, you know, even when it freaked you out, um, you know, he seemed Mr. All-America, but who has, I think I say about him, I'm Bing Crosby, when I take on his voice, um, I can, you know, basically I can do anything I mm. want. I'm entitled to everything and I can do anything. Mm. Uh, now, a minstrel, you know, if I'm thinking of black minstrelsy in its historical sense in the U.S., um, in its uglies, in many ways, um, and in many ways, egregious ways, his figure of, of this, this, this creation of um, a kind of black id. You know, mm. He danced, he spoke strange language, you know, he was full of impulses, um, was thrilling to white audiences. Right. Um, Absolutely thrilling, emotionally, performatively, gesturally. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't have a lot of forms of popular music without that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, so the minstrel figure in some way strikes you as disgraceful, as embarrassing, as beneath you, beneath mm -hmm. your civilized self, and possesses qualities um, mm -hmm. of expression demonstration of um, impersonation of theatricality um, of presumptuousness right. that you don't and mm. the minstrel allows you that outlet mm. um, you identify you imitate but you still maintain uh, in a sense your superiority yeah 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 so uh, I wanted to invert that and mm. be the one who got to take on Bing Crosby um, yeah um, and maintain my own yeah. power. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you take requests for your next book, Margot, I'd love more on this. Like that for oh. me, I found an absolutely fascinating uh, okay. subject, which I'd love well, to hear more from you. You know, maybe I'll start with pursuing it more in an essay. That's always a good way. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Okay. Um, I, 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 there's so much I'd like to talk with you about this in this book and uh, we just won't have time for all of it, but just, I guess, coming on from what we were just talking about, but also because I'm, you know, I'm recording this from from Paris, from France. And recently, uh, in the last couple of months, Josephine Baker was, um, her, her, she was, her remains were moved to the Pantheon. She was, um, what's, what's the word they use? She was. Uh, what is the word? Uh, in, in, not, re, not reinterred. It had yeah. to be more glamorous than that. Exactly. But she was elevated, I guess. To yes, the Pantheon, very much. Yes. Um, of um, a sort of great. French artists and um, even in the way she was being written about in 2022 in France you could pick you could, I suppose it comes back to that thing you were talking about earlier about when you read an article and you're sort of like ow oh, what's what's going on here something isn't quite right and it was fascinating to feel that this figure of Josephine Baker still causes I guess, unease, un confusion, like why do people find her intriguing, particularly, I guess, white people or like as a, a overridingly white culture um, in France? Like what, what is it about, about, about this figure? 
Yes, and also Senshi is partly this figure of enchanting um, mm. naughtiness and desire and lust, and I'll kind of she played very much with being an adorable um, mm. kind of female menstrual, you know. And then she became this um, deserves and <laughs> this you know purveyor of French popular song. She's everywhere, and mm. that causes even when it's thrilling. A certain mistrust, you right. know. She's always a moving target. Um, I think also the way I think the shock of she was a spy during World War II. Mm -hmm. You know that that combination of um, of grand frivolity and seriousness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is is still unsettling to people. Mm -hmm. I I and I think that's true in America um, as well. With with on all sorts of audiences like mm -hmm. where does she belong oh, yeah yeah know. yeah and and when and when faced with these um these powerful women that we're not entirely sure what to do with we often will use the term diva to in, in some way kind of i guess limit their it can be used that way well mm -hmm. it, it's because it always suggests well there is a sort of whatever she was able to do um mm -hmm. you know on various continents um you know come on it's just entertainment you know, even with opera, she was able to just opera. You know, the self grandiosity, you know, mm -hmm. is really a little intolerable. There, there can be, though there are people now uh, doing women, um, mm -hmm. scholars doing very interesting work on divas, but there can definitely be a kind of um, benign condescension. Mm -hmm. It ranges from benign condescension to just, oh, please stop that diva behavior, you know, <laughs> yeah. as if. When you, particularly as a woman, and this is, you're a black woman and you came from East St. Louis and you, you know, conquered Paris, um, uh, at the beginning of, you know, in early days of modernism and then till you were 80. Um, and then you try, insisted on being political and being mm -hmm. taken seriously and then right. adopting all these children. <laughs> there can be a sense of, you know, just, you should be grateful for uh -huh. what you've gotten and mm -hmm. don't ask for too much and be, hey, don't ask for too much more. Here's yeah. how we're going to reward you and mm -hmm. behave yourself, please. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, at its best, the diva represents the beautiful shaping of almost unbounded yes. <laughs> yes. impulses, skills, um, desires, um, artistry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that subject of artistry and taking up that phrase, kind of beautiful shaping, I think where I'd like to finish is just with kind of a formal question, I guess. Ooh, uh, yes. The way that you found the voice for this book, I suppose, because I, I said in the um, introduction, there's a sense of not exactly, yeah, there's kind of self-analysis and also kind of you having a conversation with yourself on the page, even like saying at moments, oh, I considered leaving this passage out or as yes. this, I'm worried about this, which it feels such an unusual approach in a way, because this is sort of, you are bearing the sort of the writer's anxieties and choices to readers. And I presume keeping some of them for yourself as well. <laughs> well you always do even when you're telling yourself you're not you're always keeping some for yourself yeah. right yeah and also with writers um you're thinking oh well i can use this further down the line <laughs> i hold it back um sure. but what uh, i had started to work in that way in negro land and mm -hmm. it was very um it was interesting to me formally because it allowed very specific things like changing pronouns, like mm -hmm. quick shifts, yeah. you know, of time and, and, uh, voice. It also felt very true to, uh, the way I was brought up, which was, had a lot to do with 
masks with performing. Mm -hmm. I, now mm -hmm. I'm the good black daughter. No, now I'm the cute black girl at an all black party. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I wanted to take that further, um, here. And I think it's, it, the book is more theatrical in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought of every encounter, um, as in some way a kind of, um, scene mm -hmm. in which I was playing whatever role was required to get, you know, the most out of um, you know, my, uh, my conversations with Josephine or Willa mm -hmm. or, you know, those little fleeting um, encounters with Fitzgerald or Mansfield or Zora Neale Hurston. Um, but I could also um, change at any mm -hmm. moment. As soon I could change my stance while I was with them, mm -hmm. step back, step forward, which meant I was the player. If you, if you, if I'm, Staying with the theater metaphor, I was mm. the actor in the scene, but I was also, let's say, the narrator mm. who comes on in many plays and comments on the action. And as the writer, I was mm. directing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Does, I wanted all of that. Yeah. Is is there a certain um, exhaustion that comes with that? Like at the moment, I, I have this quote out of context. Uh, at the moment, you say. Um, this confessing and reckoning have exhausted me. I need an imaginative break. Yes. This performance uh, must have been so all-consuming in a way. It was consuming. And I'm glad you, you said that because that was also, I think, a goad to mm. my using up, drawing on other people's words and continually moving, you know, yeah. just deciding, okay, if something really doesn't fit, okay, but for now I'm going to keep it because all of that in some way, if you, you, you change the the register you're singing with. You slow it down. Mm -hmm. You know that allowed um, periods of rest. Um, I go backstage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm somebody else. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, look, Margot, I'm going to let you make your way into the wings, into the back. <laughs> Taking up enough of your time, but this has been an oh, absolute this pleasure. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Um, constructing a nervous system of course, is available from Shakespeare and Company here in Paris from our bricks and mortar store. It's available from our online store as well. It's also available from your local independent bookstore, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. So do uh, do check it out. And I do stress the word independent there. Ah, very um, much so. All that remains for you to say is, Margot Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Adam, it was really a pleasure. It me, Shakespeare, Shakespeare and <laughs> Company. I love it. <laughs> oh, we love it too. <laughs> okay. See you soon, Margaret. You bet. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>